appreciate that. Well, our sermon today is going to be the enti- on the entirety of Psalm 97. So I invite you to find Psalm 97. I want you to read along as we go, or, or follow along as we read it. It's on page 592 of the Bible in front of you. And um, just a word about the church season that we're in right now. This is the final Sunday of the Easter season. Next Sunday is Pentecost, which is really exciting, right? That's when the Holy Spirit comes. Today is also the day we would observe Ascension Sunday, and that's why we had that passage there uh, from Acts chapter 1 that Annika read is about the ascension of Jesus Christ back up to heaven. And so um, there's a lot going on. And in the Easter season, I really wanted to to preach every week on the the resurrection of something and, and how the resurrection actually changes our lives. And in a broad stroke, I would say today is really about the resurrection of hope. Because hope is something that can die, but it can be born again. And so today is about the resurrection of hope. And Psalm 97 might seem like a strange place to find that, but we're going to understand pretty soon why, uh, why this is that we're looking at this passage today. I want to say a few words about Psalm 97. We love the Psalms. They are these beautiful hymns, poems, uh, they're... they're they're just, they really touch the heart. So the form of this psalm, of course, is, is, is a poetic psalm. We don't know when it was written or by whom, but we'll kind of get into that in just a second. And it's a, this is a certain kind of psalm. It's called a psalm of enthronement. It talks about God coming into the world and, and not just into the world, but God being seated on the throne so that he has authority over all things and that even false gods would then worship him if they even existed because he's so majestic and so powerful. And this is a very, we're going to get into this, but this is a very interesting kind of, why, why are they having a psalm like this? Why did they use a psalm like this? Why did they get it from the Lord? So part of that would have to depend on when this psalm was written, and we don't know that either. There's a lot we don't know. It's very interesting. Nobody put the dates on these things, right? Um, So it's possible that this psalm, and and roughly speaking, we try to date things like the psalms in the Old Testament as whether they were written before the exile into Babylon of God's people in Judah in 587 B.C., or was it written after 580 B.C.? So that would either be pre-exile or we would call it post-exile. And this one, we don't know if it's pre-exile or post-exile, but we have some ideas. And if this is a pre-exile psalm, we think it's possible that a psalm like this was written and used when there was a procession of the Ark of the Covenant being taken into the temple and being placed in the Holy of Holies on a very special feast day. And there's this sense that God himself was sitting on this tiny throne, which is on top of the lid of the ark. There's two angels sort of facing each other. Their wings are facing each other, and there's a tiny throne, although the size doesn't matter because we we don't think God has a size per se. And so this ark would proceed into the Holy of Holies, and it would be placed there on the feast day, and they would sing this song as it was moving along, And it would be a song of praise to God that, yes, now he's coming into his temple and all things are going to be set right because God is in the house, literally. He's really there. 
Who laughed? That's great. Thank you, Karen. Yes. So that's one possibility, but I don't want to, I'm not sure. I, li I mean, I know I like that possibility, but the data or the evidence that we have po points a little more that this psalm might be what's called a post-exile psalm. It was written and used at a later date in the history of the people of God, and it was actually a word of hope to them because they were in captivity. And so you can see how it would function differently there because they, in captivity they didn't have the ark and they weren't allowed to do processions. In fact, they were surrounded by all sorts of other processions of pagan gods that they were forced to watch, most likely, or forced to at least stand by. They maybe not ex uh, participate in, but they were probably forced to watch them. And so um, here are some people that were, that were in exile. They had been taken from their home. They'd been marched hundreds of miles from Judah, this area around Jerusalem, all the way to Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq. They had to walk there on foot. Many people died along the way. Uh, they were living in, in just squalor there, at least at first, until they were able to establish a culture of their own. And um, so I'll get into that a little bit later, but I think of this as maybe more a song of hope for people who are in exile, away from their homeland, hoping for the day when God will show up and deliver them from captivity, okay? So let's think of, that, think of it in that context. And I ask you to kind of imagine the people sort of living in captivity and how would they hear this psalm and how would they speak it and, and with what kind of hope would they read this psalm together. So let's read. It's Psalm 97, page 592. It goes like this. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. All who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and rejoices, and the villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones. I'm going to read that last part again. Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is shed upon the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise his holy name. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to go a little more into the history of how Israel found itself, or Judah found itself in the situation it was in, in the exile. Just a real quick history, and here's the confusing part, is sometimes when we say the word Israel, we mean all of God's people, the whole 12 tribes. 
But after the time of Solomon, when we say Israel, we mean the northern kingdom of Israel, 10 tribes or so. And then we talk about Judah being the area around Jerusalem that has the tribes of Judah and, and Benjamin, I believe. I could be wrong on that. I, I just, I'm having a moment right now where I can't remember. So, but Judah is, is still a very powerful nation because it has, the, it has its center in Jerusalem. And so sometimes we call it the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom to make it a little less confusing. But in general, the northern kingdom, or Israel, was conquered by the Assyrians in the 700s B.C., and um, the, the Assyrians were horrible, horrible people. They were an empire. They, they um, had very little regard for human life. They, they slaughtered whole towns and villages if anyone opposed them. And, and they were universally hated. In fact, there were civil wars amongst the Assyrian Empire, and there were all sorts of other empires that were vying to sort of push it back. And you may remember that uh, the, the prophet Jonah, was sent to the capital of Assyria, which is Nineveh. And he was sent there to tell them to repent of their wickedness. And, and, the, and Jonah really didn't want to go because he hated the Assyrians. He really hated them. He, he wanted to, when he finally did end up going, he wanted to stand on a hillside and, and just watch the fire rain down and, and eat some popcorn and just like, oh, what a show. This is great. And, and then God brings this 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 uh, vine, and it grows up, and it dies in a day. And God says, you need to care about, if you care so much about a plant that is here today and tomorrow is gone, how much more should you care about the people of Nineveh, some of whom don't know their right hand from their left? And what he means is innocent people like children. So he does. He, he goes in. He does. He, he preaches repentance to Nineveh, and Nineveh turns at least for a while. And, and he's mad. You know, he's like, oh, I wanted to see them all burn. Oh, well, but God, you're so great. You're so nice. I hate that about you, God. You're so nice. We're going to come back to, to Jonah. But it shows just how much the Assyrians were despised at that time. The Assyrians were only able to take the northern kingdom. They, took, they destroyed it. They took all those people away. They scattered them everywhere. We have not heard from them since, it seems. We don't know what happened to them. They, they, they kind of lost their cohesion as a people, and they don't really exist anymore. But the southern kingdom, it held out until 587 B.C. Um, however, it wasn't the Assyrians that came and got Judah. It was another kingdom called the Babylonians. The Babylonians actually rebelled against the Assyrians and finally put an end to them and destroyed the city of Nineveh in about 612 B.C. So whatever repenting they did under Jonah, it didn't keep. Nineveh was finally destroyed, and uh, if Jonah had been alive to watch it, he probably would have been very excited about it. He was long gone. But Nineveh fell, Assyria fell, and Babylon was now the new power. It had taken over all that area of Mesopotamia. The interesting thing about sort of geopolitics back then is you had, if you can imagine Mesopotamia, the land between two rivers here, and here's the Mediterranean Sea. I don't, you know, I should really have a video here, but I don't. And down here you have Egypt, and you have two poles of great power. Egypt is very powerful, always has been, and Mesopotamia is very powerful. And all the countries in between, including Judah, are like the rope in a tug of war between these two people, these two strong powers, okay? And it's not easy being the rope in a tug of war. Let me put it another way. 
is if you had, you were on the playground and you had a bully who always was taking your lunch money. That was Mesopotamia. It would come, it came to Judah and it says, you're our vassal state, we are your suzerain. That's kind of this idea that we're above you, we're going to kind of protect you, but we're going to kind of plunder you too. It's almost like a colony, a vassal state. So it's like a bully came and found a, a much smaller kid on the playground and said, I'm going to take three quarters of your lunch money. And you can keep the last quarter. You can do what you want with it. But we're always going to be pulling resources out of you. Well, there's another bully on the playground, not quite as strong, but pretty strong, Egypt. And so imagine that you're the one getting bullied. You look for another bully, and you say, if you only take half of my lunch money, you can, you can be my bully. But you have to stand up against these other people, for, this other bully for me. You get the idea? So th that's the problem, though. That's what Judah did. It tried to trade bullies. It tried to make a deal with Egypt to protect them from Babylon. When Babylon got, hurt, got wind of it, it had to make an example of Judah. So it invaded, it besieged Jerusalem. It took years. It took a long time. All these things take a long time. You know, wars can sometimes, nowadays wars can be over in a week. Not often, but sometimes, you know. Um, back then, wars were years-long processes. Babylon invaded Judah. It, it said, now we have to make an example out of you. It's important. This is an important concept. Is we, now what we have to do, we're really sorry that you tried to find another bully, but now we have to show everyone in this whole region that anyone else who tries to do the same thing, you don't want to try to do the same thing. And so what did Babylon do? It destroyed whatever it could find. It destroyed buildings, it destroyed structures, it, it just, just, just wrecked everything. It took the people, the most... The royal people, the aristocrats, also any skilled laborers it could find. And it says, we're going to take all your, for lack of a better word, all the best and brightest of your society, and we're going to pull them out of there and march them to our homeland, and we're going to set you up someplace else. And, and we want you to stay alive so that you continue to be an example to everyone else. Isn't that interesting? Because they could have just slaughtered them all. They said, we're going to take you. The Assyrians would have. The Babylonians were a little different. And then... We're going to take some people from somewhere else, and we're going to import them to your old land, and they're going to make it their home, so that it's going to be really hard for you ever to come back someday. And it's going to mess up. It's basically, we're going to destroy your culture, your heritage, your traditions, and you're going to be absorbed into this larger collective, and that's going to happen to anyone else who tries to make a deal with Egypt. So it's about a sign. It's about a symbol. Really interesting. Um, and so these people were a walking symbol of the power of Babylon to stop revolts inside its own empire. And what's interesting then about this psalm is it is, it is also a symbol or a sign that says Yes, Babylon is more powerful than us militarily. They've held, they're holding us captive in this land. We can't go back to our homeland. We're not permitted. What's happening in our homeland is it's changing day by day. And honestly, this is the beauty. This shows the power of God. Is that the people from Judah who were brought to Babylon, 
by all, for all rights and purposes, they should have just vanished. They should have lost their identity. They should have lost their tradition. They should have just gotten absorbed into this larger empire, lost their language, customs, cultures, religion, everything. But what held them together? Something that no other culture had. This, praise God for this. They had the word. They had the revelation from God. They had God saying, you are a chosen people. You are a special people. You will not vanish from the earth. And so this was a really, actually, what could have been a catastrophic time for the God, people of God was a very fertile time for the people of God because they, they leaned in even more into the word and they, they developed a whole school to collect parts of the Bible and to put it into some sort of order because before then it had, a lot of it had been an oral culture, an oral tradition. They started writing it down. They started keeping collections. And so they maintained their identity through this horrific time where many people died all around them. And they were able to keep this all together. And thank God, because we wouldn't have this for, without them. We see God's hand in this, though, right? Sure, these were exceptional people, but God was with them. He's like, I am not giving up on you. Even though I let your enemies take you away, I am not going to give up on you. I am going to redeem you someday. It may take some time. Just like when the people were in Egypt. It took some time. But I will always deliver you. I will hear your cries. And so you think about this psalm, and they're used to watching other people get enthroned. They're, watch, they're used to watching military parades go by. They're used to watching all sorts of pomp and, and circumstance of the world around them where they're in captivity. And maybe even this was a secret psalm they had. Like, guess what? We have our own enthronement ritual. We have our own one. Let's say it to each other because this is the real one. This is where God is really in charge. So look at the psalm real quick. Go ahead and look at your pages there. Page 592. This is almost subversive to live in a foreign land where you're, where you're not supposed to really have another god besides the, the emperor. It says, the Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Wow. Look how powerful God is. Clouds and thick darkness. This is sort of language of power. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. There's that word throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. Wow. We're not talking about some minor god here, are we? We're talking about this really powerful God. How powerful? Well, the mountains melt like wax before him. That I would like to see, right? The heavens proclaim his righteousness and on and on. He's going to bring justice. He's going to bring deliverance. You know, we have our own... Um, there's all sorts of processions. These are, not, these are not gone. We have our own kind of rituals that are like this, where someone goes to the top. I'll give you an example. You know what happens at the Super Bowl, right? It's, just, it's the same thing. Somebody wins. Eventually, somebody wins after all the commercials, right? And what happens? All this confetti starts flying through the air. The, the, uh, the trophy comes out. First, they hand it to the quarterback, and he's like, yeah, you know, I really want to praise Jesus, usually, you know, or God, or some kind of combination of those words. And uh, I really want to pray. And the team was great. And I just want to thank my wife and my kids and, 
And then he hands the trophy to the coach, right? This is kind of going up in order of importance. He hands it to the coach, and the coach says, yeah, these guys really worked hard, and we never gave up despite all the doubters. And it's just like, it's a, it's a formula. Then he hands it. Who does he hand it to next? The most important person. The, who said the owner? Everybody. The owner, because he owns the team. We're a capitalist society. It's not about the quarterback or the coach. It's the owner. Because the owner really won it, you know. He was out there on the field running. No. Then the owner's like, yeah, I just got to really respect this organization. And, you know, I just want to thank our shareholders and all that, you know. <laughs> and so it's, you know, that's our, that's our psalm of procession for our secular world. It's just this procession of this trophy through several hands until it gets to the most important person. And then they say, what are you going to do? And they're all like, we're going to Disneyland. You know, that's like the benediction. We're going to Disneyland. It's like, okay. So we have them too in this world. We still have psalms of procession, but this is the one for God's people who are in captivity. This is the one that gave them hope when they were hopeless. Love it. That's why I love this psalm. And so part of what I'm going to ask you to do is, is actually to meditate on this psalm. Meditate on this. And I want to ask sort of the question, I think we understand how it functioned for God's people back then. It functioned as a resurrection of hope. That we're not stuck here forever. That this is going to end someday. That justice and righteousness are going to come out on top somehow. That God actually has the ultimate power at the end. And you know what? They were right, weren't they? They were right. The Babylonian Empire, it fell. How do you like that? It was conquered by the Persian Empire. And the Persian king let the people go back. He let them go back. He's like, yeah, it's time. You can go back now. And whatever identity they were able to build, and it probably even grew while they were in captivity, they carried back with them. And they had all sorts of challenges there, didn't they, when they came back? There were all the people that had been sent there before that they had to contend with, right? Um, but they, they finally found their way back. So this was a, a word of hope for the people in captivity. And I want to ask, how does it work for us? How does a psalm like this work for us? Is it, is it a word for us? Are we in captivity? I guess it depends on who you ask. We're, we're free to be here right now. You're free to get in your car and drive anywhere in this country. You're free to speak. You're free to vote. You're free to worship. Um, I don't know if your house has been taken by somebody else, but I hope not. It's different. But yet I feel, and I've been feeling it more, and I, I say this often, I, I've been feeling it more, that the world seems like it's changing. And I don't, I'm not talking about the end times or anything like that. I'm not looking for one day or another. I'm not trying to predict any end. But it just feels coarser than it used to. It feels like there's more anger in our world right now. It feels like there's more contention with other people. Perhaps I'm just being pessimistic. Perhaps I'm only seeing the bad news. I, I wish there was a news channel where I could only see stories about puppies and kittens, you know. I'd watch that all day. There probably is, you know, it's called YouTube. If, you, if you're careful, there's other parts of YouTube you don't want to touch. But there probably is a section of YouTube where I could just watch puppies and kittens all day. But I know I shouldn't do that. That's not really a good idea. There's all this anger. There's all this nationalism. There's trade wars. There's reality being warped. We, don't, we can't even agree what something means. 
To me, that's nuts, right? Nations are rising against nations. It's happening right now. So in, that, in this world that I'm in, while I may not be in captivity, I definitely feel the oppression of false gods. All the false gods that are around us. Materialism and nationalism and insanity of one form or another. And I, I feel oppressed. I do. And so will I see God as a deliverer in this? He's the one who kind of cuts through all the false idols. I want to read verse 7 again. Verse 7 is so great. It says this, All who worship images, those would be idols, all who worship images are put to shame. And I would say that's true about me too, because I have my own idols. Those who boast in idols, worship him, all you gods. Which is an interesting thing. The Bible often says is that all the false gods will actually bow down to the true God. Which is kind of funny because it also says those false gods aren't real gods. So how can they actually do anything? But it's a symbolic way of saying it. That all falsehood is going to collapse in the face of the ultimate truth of who God is. And he's going to show up someday. So I think God can bring sanity and peace into the world. So we're looking for a sign. We're looking for a sign, a symbol of God's power in this world now. And you know, it's really interesting that, that in the time of Jesus, he would do signs. He would do mighty acts of power. He would raise the dead. He would feed 5,000. He would cast demons out. And he even talks about why he does the signs. Sometimes the signs are so that people will believe. Sometimes the signs are so that people will listen to him, so that he ha they realize he has something to say. But the minute they start asking him for new signs, Right? Like, that wasn't enough. Oh, that miracle, that was pretty good, but that wasn't enough. I would like another sign, please. You know, That happens uh, among David and his men, too. They keep asking the Lord, and the Lord just stops answering it at some point. He's like, I already gave you an answer. I'm not going to keep answering. But Jesus says, to this generation, I'm only going to give one sign. The sign of Jonah. There he is again. Isn't that great? I'm going to only give the sign of Jonah, which is a kind of a confusing thing, because Generally, Jonah isn't a positive character until at a certain point he kind of figures things out. What is the sign of Jonah? The sign that Jesus gives is the sign of Jonah. It's the sign of someone who goes down for three days and comes back up again. So the sign that Jesus gives is that there's hope because there's victory over death. There's hope over the grave. But it's not mountains melting. Enemies getting destroyed on the battlefield. Human power manifested in a person who can legislate or, or dominate or invade. None of that is the way God's working now. Jesus is always working in a subversive way. Here's the example. He says, love other people. Love your brother so much that you would die for your brother. That's the way that God's power now starts to move in the world. I think we all understand this. I hope we do. So, we have a work as part of this psalm, which is, we have to be the enactment, the enacting of this enthronement. We almost have to let God be enthroned in us. And not in a way where we then become this outworking of God dominating the world, 
But this outworking that Jesus animates what we do. Jesus guides what we do and say so that we start acting like Jesus. And we do this with acts of love and service. And so when we encounter hate, we respond with love, which is really hard to do. It's really hard to do. Um, luckily, I've had a lot of opportunity. I say luckily. I've had a lot of opportunity to, to practice this lately. And, and I've, I actually thank God for it is to, to be able to come back at anger or hatred with love is, is really so humbling on one hand, but it's also so freeing on another. And you really sense that this is, how you, when you do it, you really sense that this is what Jesus wants you to do. And when Jesus is on the throne here, he, he says, you, you should bind up the brokenhearted and rescue the captive and set prisoners free, and sacrifice for other people, and you value the life of other people. That's what you do when God is on the throne in your heart. And then you hold on to this comfort that a psalm like this gives us, that God is of a certain character. He's of the kind that will come and bring righteousness and justice. He's got the power of fire. He can melt mountains, but he's He's going to save that to the end. He's going to set everything right. Nothing can stand against it, and false idols and distortion can't stand up to him either. And so I want to invite you to, to meditate on this psalm this week, but I want us to actually stand up right now. Could you stand up for, with me, please? And just find verse 10. Find verse 10 in your Bible. And I want us to read verses 10, 11, and 12 together as a prayer, and that's how we'll end today, that God is going to change us and, and be enthroned in our heart and resurrect our hope, even in this cynical and broken world that we're in. So let's read this together, starting at verse 10. Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is shed upon the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise his holy name. Amen.